Well, good afternoon and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. As usual, I am your host, William Hill, and I already made a big mistake because I assume that everybody's listening in the afternoon. Maybe you're listening to this in the morning. Maybe you're listening to this in the evening. Whenever it may be, we do welcome you to this edition of the podcast. The podcast originates from Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary, and this is broadcast number 24, and today's date is August 24th. 2012. We have a really good discussion lined up, a timeless discussion, one I think that uh, you will enjoy, one that I think you should think about and, and sink your teeth into and listen carefully to, but more about that in just a minute. As I indicated, we are uh, doing this podcast from Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary, and it is a podcast of the seminary, weekly edition, and we try to do that each week faithfully. If you have questions about the seminary, you can visit us at our website, gpts.edu. And just for those who want to stay in the know about things that are happening around here, we are in the process. It's uh, weeks away, so don't get excited, but we are in the process of totally revamping our entire website. Um, We have got the permission to do that, and so we are working diligently to make that happen. So look for great things from our website in the days to come. If you're interested in more information about this podcast, if you want to know who I am, if you want to know who's going to be coming up on the program, if you want to hear back episodes, you can do that at ConfessingOurHope.com. And as usual, you can write me at ConfessingOurHope at gpts.edu. Questions or comments, criticism about the program, feel free to write in. I always respond. I may not respond that day, but I promise I will get back to you in a timely fashion. And of course, I would be remiss if I did not mention our mobile app that you can now download, use on your Android or uh, iOS device and listen to this podcast anywhere you are. Um, or, in fact, chapel sermons that the seminary does, as well as other material that would be available on the mobile app. So you can get that simply by going to confessingourhope.com, following the information there. As I indicated, we do have a a really interesting discussion today, a a talk about a subject that is, I think, of a timeless uh, uh, fashion. It's something that we constantly need to come back to and we need to realize. And we're going to be talking with Dr. David Garner, about a book that he had uh, recently edited entitled, Did God Really Say? Affirming the Truthfulness and Trustworthiness of Scripture. Dr. Garner has his Ph.D. from Westminster Theological Seminary and is an associate professor at Westminster Theological Seminary, as well as pastoring Proclamation Presbyterian Church, a Presbyterian Church uh, a church of the Presbyterian Church in America in Bryn Mawr, Pennsylvania. So, Dr. Garner, it's great to have you on, and I know it, you're right in the beginning of your uh, academic year, and so things are probably getting very busy, but I appreciate the fact that you took the time to talk with me today about this book and this subject. Well, thank you very much for having me on, and it's a, it's a delight to be here with you. Great. Thank you, sir. Uh, just real quick, um, it, this is a topic that, as we talked off air, uh, needs to be visited often, um, and it's been discussed often. There's many books written on this subject. Why this book now? Well, that's a, boy, a great question, an important question, Um, and actually the history of this book is directly correlated to that question. As you probably know, and most of your listeners uh, likely know as well, the the history of the attack on Scripture as our authority, um, as a reliable and trustworthy source, as what we would use in, in the language of in the scholarly world, as the Bible as being inerrant and infallible, um, that has been an issue that has been debated for for years, and in fact, I would argue, goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden itself when the serpent... Um, actually, before Adam and Eve, put a question mark in their head about the the authority of God's speech to them, the, the sufficiency of God's speech to them, even the clarity of God's speech to, to them, when he, he asked them questions about what God had said to them and planted that seed of doubt. And subsequent to that, generation upon generation of the people of God have had to wrestle with and reckon with the temptation 
to move away from relying wholeheartedly upon God's self-disclosure, upon his revelation to them in his inscripturated word. And none, not um, uh, even our generation many thousands of years later is immune from that. And indeed, in the scholarly world today, um, the Bible is once again, if I could put it this way, on trial. And mm. people are are looking at it as something that is for them to judge rather than to sit under its blessed and gracious authority. Absolutely. Now, you use some terms in there that um, I, I had a, a listener write in one time uh, after doing another interview and um, where the guest used terms and he wasn't really sure what, what did he mean by that, when, what does that even mean. And sometimes in conversations like this, I certainly know what you mean, and you certainly know what you mean. Um, but you say inerrant and infallible. How are those similar? Uh, maybe first, what do they actually mean? maybe, and then how are they similar, and how are they different? Well, you know, and, and maybe it would be valuable to talk about that at some length. I think perhaps just for the sake of our audience, uh, those terms, they have some, in some places, frankly, they've been used interchangeably. I think right. probably the subtitle of our book is probably the best way to think about what those terms together, mm-hmm. or even independently, mean, and, and that is that it is concerning the truthfulness and trustworthiness of Scripture. They are terms that are used, in, again, in the scholarly world to as, as a summary or a shorthand to describe that the nature of Scripture, because it is nothing less than the Word of God, that because He is its author, He does not mislead us, and so it is perfectly or infallibly true. Um, it is a word that, as we uh, we discussed moments ago, it is inherent. And what that means, <clears throat> excuse me, what that means is that it does not contain any errors whatsoever. And therefore, for for our church, for our generation, and really for the preaching of the gospel around the world, we need to realize that what we have in the scriptures is nothing less than a wholly reliable. Uh, revelation of God Himself to us, mm-hmm. and and when we're talking about these things, how do we come to a realization that Scripture is in fact inerrant and infallible? Do, I mean, do we have some kind of standard we go to and says, "Yep, the Bible is in, it's infallible. We can completely trust it. It's without error." How do yeah, we that, get again, to that? Again, that a great reasoning? question. You know, you actually the first place that you would go is actually the Scripture's claims uh, on itself. Um, you look at some probably familiar passages to, to many in the listening audience, a, a text like Second Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, in which it says, um, many varying translations of this, but essentially that, that Scripture is breathed out by God, and that what is in view when Paul is writing this final letter to Timothy under the inspiration of the Spirit that when he writes this letter, he reminds Timothy as he's handing him the baton Mm. um, of of ministry that he has a a wholly reliable source of of truth uh, as the foundation upon which he will do the work of ministry that Paul talks about in chapter 4 of 2 Timothy. He tells Timothy, preach the word. Well, what word? Well, it's the word that he has just told Timothy, is is the word that is literally breathed out by God, that the product of Scripture is nothing less than God's very own uh, breath to us, that he has spoken to us something that, because he is the speaker, is nothing less than wholly true and wholly reliable. Mm. Now, because this subject is so important, and it has, I mean, as we talked off air, I mean, ultimately every error of the church, every divergent view, every heterodox position, even neo-orthodox position, can come right back ultimately to this foundational aspect of is the Bible the Word of God, and, and certainly there's aspects in there that you know that touch on it, like the, the applied hermeneutic and, and and various other elements. But when we talk about an attack on Scripture. Um, and I think the book makes reference to the fact that, that Scripture, even in today's age, and as you have just said, has happened since the Garden of Eden, um, there's an attack on Scripture from outside the Church, which we would, I think, naturally understand as expected in some sense. Right. Um, but we also nowadays as well, uh, and, and it's not new to this 
generation, but we also see it uh, an attack on Scripture from those within the church, those that we would call, maybe call brothers or sisters in the faith. Yeah. Um, maybe let's talk a little bit about what those attacks look like in our 21st century. Yeah, again, I commend you for your thoughtful question. I, you know, boy, this, this could be a lengthy discussion in and of itself, mm-hmm. but honestly, the impetus for this volume was not from issues outside the church. It was actually generated by issues within the church itself. And I, I use that, that term church not to speak of a particular denomination or a particular local congregation, but the believing body of faith. Um, and really, even within our own Reformed circles, that um, the, the doctrine of Scripture has been challenged. Boy, what are some of the reasons for that? Well, you know, if I can pick upon my own profession a little bit, there is a, uh, a deeply rooted um, desire uh, within the academic world to, to make a name for oneself. Mm. And the way in which you do that is that you say something in a way that will get people's attention. Um, now, I don't want to get into the psychology of all that, nor do I want to impugn the motives of those who have written about certain things, but I think it's an undeniable teaching of Scripture itself that our hearts are deceitful, um, that we tend towards self-adulation, towards praise of self, towards uh, that our bent, um, this side of glory, is always being tempted towards uh, giving glory to ourselves rather than giving glory to the God who has revealed himself to us. And I, I think until Christ returns and everything is, is made wholly right, um, I think that temptation is always going to be there. So how does that relate to this discussion? Well, um, combine what I just said with what has taken place in the last 30 to 40 years in biblical scholarship. Um, the, the challenges have now been levied on whether language is a vehicle that can actually deliver concepts in an understandable way. So now, does, can language really have meaning, or is meaning created mm. by the listener or by the reader? So that the, the, the meaning of a text is no longer sourced in the writer or the speaker, but in the interpreter. And so that meaning is not something that is built into the words themselves, but meaning is actually something that is created by the one who reads or listens. Well, that might sound like a sort of a subtle uh, matter. It might sound like a bunch of gobbledygook, but uh, mm. at, the, at the end of the day, what that really means is that, that the authority for understanding dwells no longer in something objective, but it is in the subject himself or herself. Um, that is something that has literally become pervasive in biblical scholarship, where scholars will argue, well, meaning is created uh, by the reader or the reader in his or her community and their assumptions. Well, what that does then is then it, is it relates to Scripture. It takes the focus away from God as the author who has invested the words with meaning and has delivered that meaning over the course of history, and it, now we have it in the Bible, to the place where there really is no objective meaning. That's something that is created by the reader mm. or, or by the church. Well, honestly, um, that's something that has infiltrated the Church of Jesus Christ, some ways very consciously, and I would say in many ways, um, dangerously subconsciously. Um, And uh, again, we could talk about the cultural factors, but all that's to say is in the scholarly world, you see this shift. And this is why there are every day introduced new methods of Bible interpretation, that everybody's got a new method. There are as many methods as there are people doing the Bible study and doing writing, um, and how somebody makes a name for themselves is they do something creative and write about it in a way that somebody else hasn't before. Well, what we are contending is, you know, Scripture itself claims something different, that truth is something that is actually revealed to us from God. He has spoken. And so that meaning is not something that we create, it is something that we receive from the God who has spoken. And this book was really generated out of the complexity of some of those issues that I just articulated. Yeah, and that's well said. And I think 
there's a lot of truth to what you said about the the the, mean, the use of language and the use of terms and words. I, I I was as you were talking, I was reflecting on some of the things that we're taught here when we're doing exegetical work in a text, and and if we come up with something that we think is novel or new and nobody's ever seen it before, right. chances are chances are good it's probably wrong. That's exactly right. <laughs> and 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 there, but there is that appeal it seems in today's church to kind of dovetail on what you were saying uh, to find uh, this this novelty this niche this this newness as it were this excitement in the text and and in that sense create this name or reputation and and I agree with you it's not a we're not trying to impugn motives we're not trying to say that that's your real mission in life I, I certainly can't answer that right. but I can look at how you got to that exactly. and and evaluate from there, which really leads to another question um, as it pertains to those who we would perceive as attacking the infallibility and errancy of Scripture. And I think it's a rather simple question, maybe difficult to answer. But how do we respond to those who we would say, given whatever subject it may be, that they are calling into question this foundational truth, the trustworthiness and the truthfulness of Scripture on whatever subject it may be. And when they respond and say, well, you know, I really don't be- I believe the Bible is the Word of God. I believe it's infallible. I believe it's inerrant. How do you respond to that argument? I mean, how do you deal with that when they make those claims, but yet when you look at their final analysis, right. it, it seems clear that they've departed? Yeah, that's again, it, what that raises, and I, I'm seeing this in multiple uh, venues, the distinction between somebody's claims and their method. And I would never say that um, unless they just came out explicitly and said, and said to me, you know, I know this is what I'm saying, but this is what I'm doing, and I see the difference, I'm going to do it anyway. I, mm-hmm. I would not say that most people are operating with that sort of brazen uh discontinuity between their claims and how they go about the task of interpreting scripture but what i would say is that the best way to handle that is to 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 take the time with people or to write books like this one and to say let's let's look at what your claims are and let's look at what your method is and let's help one another to see where the continuities and discontinuities lie between what you're claiming and what you're doing and one of the things that I would say is, you know, uh, this book does not come with some sort of arrogant uh, notion that, boy, uh, we we are we've got all the I's dotted and T's crossed in the right way. I think part of what the the journey of faith is is actually constantly putting our thinking, putting our practice before the lens of Scripture, and allowing the Spirit of God to take the truth of Scripture, and to bring conviction into our hearts and lives. I'm reminded of the, the words that Jesus used in John 10, when mm-hmm. he said, My sheep know my voice, they hear my voice, and they follow me. There is, there is something that I think is going to characterize true faith and true belief, and it is not going to be moving away from the authority of Scripture and the voice of Christ in it, but it is going to be a pathway that is oriented towards recognizing the the uniqueness of Scripture, the divinity or the, the, the spiritual nature of Scripture, that it really is God's Word, and helping people to come to terms with that, that's what we need to do in the church. And this really takes us back to your question about the problems within the context of the church. On one level, you'd want to say, why is this happening in the context of the church? I wish it weren't so. But on the other hand, because it's happening in the church, we have a level of appeal that we, uh, we can challenge one another towards greater faithfulness and towards a posture of humility mm. towards the nature of Scripture itself, that by virtue of what Scripture is, beckons us to bow our knee, not to stand over Scripture as its authority. Yeah, and, and I love the way you put the end that 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 the very end there, and because as you were talking, I was thinking about that very subject that as we come to Scripture, whether we're seminary students, whether we're seminary professors, whether we're, uh, for lack of a better word, lay person, uh, lay people in the pew, wherever you may find yourself, um, we have to remember that we are to be subordinate to Scripture and to humble ourselves and understand that we can't even understand Scripture 
if the Holy Spirit doesn't illumine our hearts so that we can even understand any of that things that it says. Although Scripture, as I've been reading in my hermeneutics class, um, is, is rather simple in most cases, but there are places where it's certainly more difficult. Um, I'm looking through the introduction of the book, and for the listeners' information, this, um, as I mentioned earlier, and it may have been missed, but um, my guest today is the editor of this book, and he has written, I think, a fine introduction where there's a wonderful summary of each chapter in the book. But let me give the listeners just a real quick uh, rundown of some of the authors they're going to see in this book as they go through it. Um, Scott Oliphant is, uh, writes the first chapter, Michael Williams, uh, Michael Kruger, uh, Robert Yarbrough, uh, Vern uh, Poitras, uh, John Frame, and then, of course, the editor writes the last chapter, uh, Dr. David Garner. So th- there's a wealth of information and, and scholarship here. There's um, a well-thought-out argumentation in the book. Um, admittedly, right in the beginning, you'll find that it's, not, it's designed to be polemical in some ways, but also constructive. And so I think there's a good balance of that as you go through it. But what I want to do for the sake of the listeners in our conversation is kind of work through maybe each chapter in brief and maybe talk about why this chapter is is here. Why was it necessary to be in the book? Because there's certainly a plethora of things that could have been here. Um, but you've picked seven chapters specifically on seven specific issues or, or topics related to the subject. And Scott Elephant starts out where... I'll be honest with you, it gives me great joy to to see that we start there with the Westminster Confession of Faith's position on Scripture, because that's where the divines felt it was so important. Right. Well, one of the criticisms that you are probably aware of is that uh, some have accused those in the Reformed tradition, especially those of us um, who have commitments to the Westminster standards, as actually being guilty of worshiping the Bible and mm-hmm. and seeing the way in which our our uh, confession is constructed, many have argued, and in fact, just even recently, um, books are coming out and, and articles coming out critiquing the Westminster Confession for actually uh, for bibliolatry for for idolizing the Bible rather than seeing. Um, that it should have started as they contend with the doctrine of God rather than the doctrine of Scripture. Why this chapter, I think, is so important that uh, Dr. Scott Oliphant, professor of apologetics at Westminster, has written. Why I think that is so important is because Dr. Oliphant really uh, implicitly addresses that issue, but does so in a way that actually highlights the fact that the reason why we start with the the doctrine of scripture is precisely because God is its author mm. and that there that we we need to to recognize that if um that the the divines the the Westminster divines who penned the Westminster confession spent a great deal of hours poring over uh, not only the order of the confession, but the language of chapter 1, which is on the nature of Scripture itself. So a marvelously worded chapter, and provides the basis by which um, we, we can confidently say that we know truly that God has truly communicated, He has accurately communicated, and that chapter 1 doesn't point us away from God, it doesn't exalt the Bible in the place of God, it exalts the Bible because, as the psalmist has put it, that God is exalted above all things, his name and his word. Mm. And so that we, we are, as God's people, actually honoring God by honoring that which he esteems. Yeah, uh, Dr. Oliphant in the opening chapter and uh, quotes um, Warfield, who was actually quoting... Um, scholar Alex F. Mitchell here, and and he amplifies, or you've amplified a little bit of what he says here. He says, if any chapter of the Westminster Confession of Faith was framed with more elaborate care than another, it was that which treats of the Holy Scripture. It was considered paragraph by paragraph, almost clause by clause, by the House of Commons, as well as by the Assembly of Divines, before it was finally Past so so the divines um, and I think his point here is that they they took this very seriously even more seriously than even other chapters in the confession it was a critical point upon which everything was built therein it was the the launching pad as it were 
for the entire confession. It was everything was to come back to Scripture and point back to Scripture as the foundation for everything that's going to be said going forward. And I appreciate that he put that in there. Right. Absolutely. Now, the, 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 the next chapter moves from the confessional aspect. Michael Williams, um, and I'm not familiar with his background, so maybe you can help us with that, but um, he returns to the, the development of inerrancy and, and, and dovetails a little bit on, um, on Warfield's uh, positions on this. Uh, maybe right. talk, talk us a little bit through, maybe give us uh, who is Michael Williams and then maybe talk right. a little bit about his yeah. task. Dr. Michael Williams actually is a professor of systematic theology at Covenant Seminary in St. Louis. And um, this particular essay that he has done, I think, is a, is, is a quite striking one on, on this, for this reason. Um, Warfield has been a figure um, that in you know, the last hundred years or so has probably gotten taken as many blows as anybody, mm-hmm. um, especially as it relates to those who would accuse him of really sort of a rationalistic formulation as he relates to the doctrine of Scripture and claiming that modernism really is what gripped Warfield as he uh, engaged his consideration of Scripture as the inerrant Word of God. And, you know, honestly, sometimes when I hear people, you know, here's a sort of a parallel example. You hear people that criticize Calvin for being cold and calculating that he was, he had this view of God that was sterile. Well, I, people that make those claims, I wonder if they've ever read a word of Calvin. Um, you know, because Calvin's theology is so richly pastoral and, and warm and yet so solidly biblical. Um, those two things don't, are not mutually exclusive. They actually go together. Well, again, in Warfield, by parallel fashion, you know, he is a, he is a man who was deeply committed to Scripture. And his development of the doctrine of Scripture was actually grounded in, in, in tremendous exegesis. Even his treatment of that very important term that I mentioned earlier from 2 Timothy 3.16, um, about the the word of God being God breathed. That's a that's a unique word in the New Testament. It only shows up there one time, and and the word uh, his work on that term has literally never been um, surpassed um, in the way in which he treats the significance and the meaning of that term and how it functions biblically. Warfield was a marvelous scholar, and what Michael Williams does in this chapter is actually highlight the fact that. That that authority of Scripture, as Warfield framed it, was actually in the context of covenant, so that when God revealed himself, that implicit in that revelation is the, the necessity of the people of God to respond in faith, so that the subjective is tethered directly to the objective. Um, while the, the conclusion about the doctrine of Scripture doesn't come by some sort of subjectivist notion, there is a, every subject has the responsibility to respond to that scripture because of what it is. And that's, I think Dr. Williams does a good job of framing that for us. Yeah, in fact, he mentions here, and it's interesting that you you drew our attention to this, um, sometimes I think reading the footnotes is almost as informative as reading the main text, um, but he's got a footnote here on page 27 of the book where he actually makes reference to this work that Warfield did on the term um, that you had been discussing when Paul declares then that every scripture or all scripture is the product of the divine breath, is God-breathed, he asserts with as much energy as he could employ that scripture is the product of a specifically divine operation. Mm-hmm. Thus, the ESV run, reading, breathed out by God, is preferred over those translations that use the word inspiration. Because, And I think his point there is that it carries the full weight and emphasis on what Scripture is. Right. It's not the, the notion, and why the word inspiration is somewhat misleading is the way in which we use that term more popularly, like an artist right. is inspired or, right. or something in that sense. That language is, is misleading from the original term. It's actually better, and I, I think it was Dr. Richard Gaffin 
that first pointed me to this. Actually, he, he's, he's one that's written a, a, a plug about this book. But Dr. Gaffin makes the point that a better translation of this is actually uh, not inspired, but expired. And, and not in the sense that it's, um, it's to be neglected now because it doesn't live any longer, but quite the contrary, that it is actually breathed out. Um, that, that the notion is here not God taking human words and breathing meaning into them, but by, by sharp contrast, what God is doing is actually the, the product of Scripture is what is in view here. It is his out-breathed words. And so the focus is not on the process, but on the product. Mm, absolutely. And, and it's such a critical, I mean, and, and so appreciative of Warfield's work and then those who came after him who have examined his work, and as you said, it's yet to be over. No one's really presented any serious challenge or even maybe amplified it beyond that because it was so so tight and crystal Certainly clear. Certainly not on that particular term. That's exactly right. right. Yep. I don't think it's ever been over, outdone. Yeah, it's it's an excellent work. And, um, yeah. and, and on the website, for those who are listening, I will um, put a link to that Warfield, the work that Warfield did that work in um, so that you can reference it or, or get the book or whatever – with today's world, maybe there's a PDF floating around out there. I don't know. But um, anyway, just for the sake of time, we're going to jump ahead a little bit. Uh, chapter three, uh, Michael Kruger deals with issues of the canon. And then in chapter four, Robert Yarbrough puts the language of the Chicago Statement of Inerrancy into its historical and theological framework. And that, that he kind of draws us into a more contemporary um, document that was um, that done. It was certainly done in my lifetime, and and probably most listeners' lifetime. But maybe tell us a little bit about what his task was there in chapter four. Okay, yeah, and I, if I could just real quickly mention uh, Dr. Kruger's work. Uh, you, you passed over that quickly, and I know we need to honor time here, but I would just point people to that. This is a a wonderfully accessible summary of what we call the, the doctrine of the New Testament canon. Why are there 27 books of the, in the New Testament? Why aren't there 28? Why aren't there 20, 29? Um, and he has really addressed modern scholarship in a way that is wonderfully accessible here. He's done a lot of work well beyond this, but this particular chapter, I think, is, is a marvelous point of entry for people that have questions about why we can look at the New Testament mm. and say that is God's final word. Mm. Um, and I think it's, it's well worth uh, giving attention to. Yeah, Doc, yeah. Doc, and and my, Dr. Kruger is actually a professor at, uh, at RTS, Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte. Dr. Yarbrough in Chapter 4, um, you're right, he actually provides a bit of a, a historical context in his chapter for the creation of the Chicago Statement um, on Inerrancy, which came about in the late 1970s. Uh, a number of figures that would be familiar to most in the audience, including R.C. Sproul, um, James Boyce, um, folks like J.I. Packer, um, and, and a number of other well-known scholars were, were very uh, deeply distressed over the way in which Scripture was being treated uh, back in the late 1970s. And there were several volumes and several writings that were sort of at the eye of that storm. Um, and so they gathered together um, in Chicago in, uh, in the late 19... I believe it was 1978-1979, and uh, out of that came the Chicago Statement on Inerrancy, followed later in the next couple of years by one statement on Bible interpretation and a third statement on the application of Scripture. But the one that's gotten the most, uh, that is most well-known, is the statement on inerrancy that Dr. Yarbrough provides the context for. And I think what he's seeking to do is to show the, the, the wonderfully uh, written but also historically um, the historical context for it, and the way in which, in the advance of the gospel, the the doctrine of Scripture must be non-negotiable, but at the same time recognizing that in certain contexts in which the, the gospel is being preached, the debates are not over the, the doctrine of Scripture. That would just be assumed. And I think he's done a great job of framing not only the historical st uh, context for the Chicago Statement and the priority of a high view of Scripture, but also showing how that sometimes these debates, we can assume that others are having them, and, and uh, they may or may not be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think it's important, and, and, and just 
for those who are listening, this Chicago Statement of Inerrancy is not um, some secret document. You can actually get it on the Internet. Um, and, I will, again, I will drop a link in there as well. Yeah, that would be good because it's well written, and uh, I think it would be a great point of reference. You may or may not be aware there is um, already work being done behind the scenes for a, a second ICBI, International Congress on Biblical Inerrancy, out of which this statement came. And it is in view of what has taken place in the, in the recent decades since uh, 1980. Um, after that, this statement was put together, many of the guys who were living at that time, some of whom participated, are their heads are spinning as they're realizing that there's need for a fresh articulation of these things to combat some of the fresh scholarly issues that have been raised, that there are solid biblical answers for, but perhaps a fresh statement would go a long ways in, in seeking to address them, and that's that's well underway right now. Absolutely, and continually affirming and reemphasizing that which we really introduced this program with, with the need to constantly revisit, rethink, not, well, rethink's probably not the right word, but to continue thinking about the fact that this subject must be defended at all costs. Right. Other subjects I can agree to disagree about. Um, I'm a Presbyterian. I, I, I disagree with my Baptist brothers. No offense to my Baptist brothers. I disagree with them over their understandings of the covenant and how it's to be applied, but they're still my brothers. But this subject cannot be compromised. We can't waffle on it. We can't change gears and, and come up with some new fangled idea about what Scripture is. It is God's Word, and it can be trusted, or we might as well ch- chuck it out and find something else to do. Well, and frankly, you know, this to me is, is directly connected to the way in which Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 speaks about the resurrection. It's quite striking that the the basis for Paul's um, preaching and teaching on the resurrection is actually in the first several verses of chapter 15, grounded that it is according to the Scriptures. It's interesting that he doesn't draw his conclusions on the, the resurrection based upon his experience with the resurrected Christ. Mm-hmm. That actually he, he tethers his confidence in the resurrection and its meaning to the authority of God in his word as he has revealed himself over the, over the course of history. And so if we do not, to kind of borrow Paul's language there, if Christ is not raised, then we are the most to be pitied. Well, what he also is saying implicitly, if we do not have an authoritative Bible that speaks truthfully, clearly, and finally to us, we are the most to be pitied. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and what would we have? As you just said, it, it, without the, this, this, this revelation of God given to his people, um, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't even know of the revelation of his Son right. without the Scriptures. That's right. And so the gospel would be foreign, and as you said, we would be a, pity, a people most to be pitied, uh, people without hope. Right. Um, I want to fast forward because we're almost out of time, and I want to sure. get, get to your chapter at the end there where you deal with some hermeneutical issues, and then you talk about this subject that it's another one of, the, another one of those terms that we throw around like everybody knows what we're talking about, and so we don't say we don't know what we're talking about because we don't want to look silly. Right. But there's this term perspicuity. Yes. What are we talking about with well, that? Well, it's, it's funny that people have joked often about, often about this term. The term perspicuity actually means clarity, and because people don't uh, know what the word means, they've moved from perspicuity to clarity. It is it's it's sort of it's a bit humorous, at least for us theologian types. But yeah, essentially, the the, the doctrine of perspicuity is the doctrine of the the clarity of the understandability if you will, of the Word of God. Mm. In the first chapter of the Westminster Confession of Faith, in in paragraph 7 of the first chapter, we see articulated this doctrine of the clarity of Scripture, and the divines were wise in the way in which they penned that, saying that not all parts of the Scripture are equally clear, but that the, the central message, the redemptive message of God, centered in His Son, Jesus Christ, is lucid, from the pages of Scripture. You cannot miss it, that God has spoken without stuttering. He has spoken in a way that is understandable. And this really gets back, then, this issue of perspicuity or clarity of Scripture is one that has gotten severe challenge, even in in, in the, the last couple of years. 
um, claiming that really the Bible is not clear. This is why we have all these various interpretations, and because the Protestant Church has elevated the Scripture in this way, that there are all these different strands of churches and denominations, and that there is no unity in the Church because the Bible actually needs another authority outside of itself. Something mm. like in, in the Reformation, you will see that the Reformers recognized that it was the, the Roman Catholic Church that was functioning as what we call the magisterium that it, was, it, it bore the teaching office. And so the Bible was not clear to the common people, so you had to rely upon the experts. Well, what's happened actually in Protestantism is actually is, is, is parallel, that in the scholarly world, scholars are now saying, the average layperson can't understand the Bible, you need to trust me and my scholarship. Well, that flies in the face of what Scripture claims about itself. And of it also, more ultimately even, challenges the notion of God's own ability to communicate clearly through the vehicle of language. Mm. And so what you're challenging when you challenge the clarity of Scripture is not just Scripture itself, but the very competency of God. And so this chapter I have attempted to highlight actually and defend the notion of the Bible's clarity and that the the attacks against it I have sought to actually challenge many of the assumptions behind those attacks and to demonstrate that the reason that we understand the Bible is because it is understandable. It does not become understood by virtue of our of our biblical interpretive techniques but that we can actually carry out the task of Bible interpretation because of the clarity of the Bible. Mm. You, you said one thing there that I thought was interesting, that if the Bible is not clear, it does call into question God's competency to communicate his will to man. Yeah. In other words, God certainly understood the noetic aspects of sin, and as we interpret Scripture, we're, we're all in a fallen world, we, we all recognize that reality, that, that even in our greatest interpretations, we recognize those aspects are still in the background, they're shadows, they're, they, they appear as we're working through Scripture. But God has said, I'm making this clear, simple, you can understand it. And if, and if, so that means we can, we have, the, we have it to understand those who are certainly have the Spirit of God indwelling us, in, 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 in illumining our minds and our hearts in these things. And if we couldn't, but yet we have it, it would certainly, in my mind, in a way, call into question God's competency to communicate it. Well, exactly, and it presupposes so many things. One of them is that if you know the, the, the history of uh, the study of linguistics, or what we call a cultural anthropology, uh -huh. that human language has been something that the the theory of evolution actually has has... Uh, provided the framework by which many in the in in those disciplines have concluded that human language is actually a human cultural construction. It's something that has evolved over time. Well, without going into the details of challenging that, let me simply say that Scripture actually identifies that God is the first speaker. Yep. He is the first communicator, and that well before God. Um, even made the, the the earth well before he made man and woman in his image as the triune god he enjoyed um the the fellowship with each member of the mm. trinity god the father god the son and god the holy spirit that there is a unbreakable pure perfect communication between each member of the trinity um, God then, this triune God, has made us in his image, and part of what he has done is made us to possess the capacity for, for uh, language, for understanding and for communicating. So language is not first a human matter, it is first a divine matter. Language is a gift. It is something that we are in, entitled, or I'm sorry, that, with which we've been entrusted to steward. You know, the fact that you and I are actually able to communicate on this uh, interview today is actually a reflection of the way in which God has made us. Mm. It's a gift. It is something that we are blessed to be able to do. 
and it is a way in which we reflect God by virtue of the way in which we communicate. So, again, without belaboring that, let me simply say that the reason that the Bible is clear is because God is the one who has spoken it, and he is the one who has created us with the capacity to understand. With that, and I'll just add this last comment, you've mentioned a couple of times in the conversation about the need for the Spirit to illumine us. But the interesting thing about that is that the Spirit does not change the Word to make it understandable. Right, right. He actually does the work on us to take away the blinders from the eyes of our heart because sin has corrupted our minds. And so what the Spirit does is actually changes us not changes the word. And I think that's an important distinction for people to recognize in terms of the doctrine of what we call illumination. Yeah, I've often reflected um, on, on the aspect that as I'm looking at a text or I'm, you know, whether I'm reading scriptures for my own personal worship in the mornings or I'm preparing for a sermon to preach or whatever the case may be, if I don't understand it, um, the problem isn't the scriptures. Right. The problem is me. And and maybe at that level, at that point, I need to stop trying to figure it out in the in, in in the sense of using all the tools and the you know those kinds of things, and maybe I need to seek God's face and say, Lord, I desire to understand Your Word. I know I can. Right. I need Your I I need Your Spirit to show me what this text Absolutely. is teaching. Absolutely. And I would wed to that very approach, the recognition, and this is something that our Western what we would call our Western post-Enlightenment culture, in which we all live here in in the United States of America and in North America as a whole, um, with this notion of each of us being independent. But Mm -hmm. the fact of the matter is that God has spoken to his church, to his covenant people, and part of the privilege that you and I have of living in the 21st century is that we get to stand on the shoulders of those who have studied God's Word uh, in generations prior to us, and that it is a great privilege that we have to share in the understanding of Scripture that's not your view, my view, somebody else's view, but that we are actually with the Church, the recipients of God's Word. And so the, the, the notion of Church history and the interpretation of the Bible over the course of history, something that was very important to the Protestant Reformers, um, it has got to be part and parcel with the way in which we understand the scriptures ourselves. That's not to say that the prior generations got everything right. There was development and growth in understanding in which we are participating. But there is a body of understanding that has been shared by the church for generations that we are privileged to, to, to join in with. Absolutely. An f- interesting story um, to go along with what you just said. Uh, I was working through a passage uh, recently, and um, there's a man here at the seminary who um, is here frequently and uh, has become quite a good friend of mine, but he's been in the minute, he was in the, he's a retired PCA minister, he was in the ministry 30, 40 years, Mm -hmm. Um, he was in the PCUS, uh, came into the PCA, and he's seen a lot, and and I was laboring over a text, and I picked his brain real quick, and I said, I've read some guys that kind of take this position. I'm not really sure how I feel about that. You know, I, I see some grain of value there, but then, you know, I read the Puritans and I read some of those guys and they take the more, what I would say, the, the classical understanding of the text. And I'm kind of torn. I, I really don't know how to approach that. He just gently said to me, he said, Bill, lean on those old guys. Yeah. Lean, lean on those old guys. There's a framework there. There's a, there's a play, there's a, there's protection in that. And as I even indicated earlier in the interview, if I come up with an uh, interpretation of Scripture, if you come up with an interpretation of Scripture, if anybody comes up with one that is nowhere to be found in the vast history of the Church, um, probably should go back and revisit it. Uh, It's likely (laughs) in error. So um, we're out of time. Uh, Real quick, and I I know we were going to talk about another subject. I won't mention it just so I don't disappoint anybody listening to this, but maybe we can have you on some time in the future to talk about that other subject. But uh, real quick, how can uh, listeners secure a copy of this book, Did God Really Say? Yes, thank you for asking. I would certainly encourage people to to go to the WTSbooks.com website. You can buy it there. You can also buy it in other places. But the, the title of the book, again, is Did God Really Say? Affirming the Truthfulness and Trustworthiness of Scripture. It is published by 
PNR Publishing of Phillipsburg, New Jersey. Um, encourage folks to get their hands on this. I do think that they will find it to be a resource for them in recultivating for some and perhaps for others, establishing a, an unprecedented confidence in the scriptures that God has given his people. Absolutely, and 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 I think that the authors that had contributed to this work would be thrilled if they heard that it did that in the lives of people, Absolutely. recognizing just how critically important. I don't care what denomination you're a part of; uh, that's okay. irrelevant to me at this point, as right. far as this conversation. But I think it would thrill the editor and the authors tremendously to know that that this book helped you either cement that which you already believe and made it even more real and more uh, gained a certain level of affirmation in a stronger way, or it turned you away from some of this business that's going on in the church. And and don't be fooled, there's a lot of funny business going on, and, and so we need to be diligent, we need to be vigilant, and pay attention and, and be aware of what's occurring in the lives of the church. Um, those issues are nearer than you realize, and so... Um, this helps. This book, I think, helps keep that framework in place and keeps us understanding that, really, when you boil it all down, folks, every doctrinal error ultimately ends up on this subject at some level. And so we need to be vigilant in this area. Dr. Gardner, I know your time is busy. I know you're getting ready to launch a new semester, so I won't keep you any longer. But I want to thank you for being on. Um, I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation and the manner upon which you answered the questions and we talked back and forth. And it's been a blessing to me to talk with you. Well, and I thank you very much, and I pray God's richest blessing on your listening audience. And just as you have said, and I'll end with this myself, my my prayer and that of my colleagues who participated in this project would indeed be that God's people would be strengthened in this very shaky time in which we live to recognize the gracious, loving care of the Heavenly Father in speaking clearly to us in His Word, and that we have a place to which we can go with unfailing and unmitigated mm. confidence, and that is to His Word that He has given to us as His people. Absolutely. Well said. And with that, we'll, um, we'll conclude this portion of the discussion. Um, for those who maybe have tuned in halfway through or whatever the case may be, I just want to let everybody know we have been talking with uh, Dr. David Gardner on a book that he had edited, Did God Really Say? Um, I will have the link on the website for those who want to purchase this book or want more information about it, aside from this interview, of course, and um, other information related to the book there as well as resource for you. So, uh, what's coming up on the podcast? I haven't got a clue, and it won't matter anyway, because you probably uh, won't hear this for a few weeks as it stands today on August 24th. So, just go to the website, and that's where you'll get all the information. So, until next time, we thank everybody for listening to this particular edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. And God bless. <laughs>